This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. very much. What's great about Tim is he's a friend of Howard. <laughs> That's what he just said. <laughs> That's, That's, That's top of my CV. <laughs> right, good morning. Uh, on this Remembrance Day, let's turn to a psalm that is about remembering. Uh, please turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to Psalm 77. Uh, if you haven't got your Bibles with me, with you, then you'll just have to trust me, more fool you. Uh, I'm going to read this psalm and then uh, we'll uh, consider it together. Psalm 77, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the days of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The days when the Most High stretched out his right hand... I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Are things getting better or worse? 
You think about the church, church in our country. Are things getting better or worse? Maybe, like me, you feel the sense in which the church is <coughs> compromised and marginalised. Increasingly, I think we find ourselves on the edge of our culture. Uh, a generation ago, we were kind of part of the mainstream. Our, at least our ethics were kind of mainstream ethics. People might not have lived by them, but, but they thought of them as the norm. But now we're on the margins. In fact, not only that, the ethics that we stand for on, things like sexuality, are seen as deviant. And, and, but, but not just that, we, we long for people to be saved, don't we? And yet we see so few being saved. And some of you, perhaps if you're older, you can remember days when, 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 when you were seeing more people were being saved. What's going on? And so we have that sense of frustration, of confusion, of, of dislocation. Or maybe if you think in your personal life. And uh, you can look back to a time when, when life was full of possibilities. Or perhaps you look back to the time, a time when so that kind of enthusiasm that you felt as a young Christian and you were so excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he'd done for you. But now, now life is tough. Now you're struggling with the responsibilities of work and family and you're into this kind of routine of commuting and, or nappies or whatever it might be and and, or maybe it's your, you face illness or loss. And so following Christ now seems like hard work. The contrast between the past and the present kind of only makes your struggles more acute. Or maybe we'll just quickly look on the bigger picture. With uh, Trump elected, are things going to get better or worse? I will let you decide that one. Have a look at, uh, again, at at verses 5 and 6 of this psalm. The psalmist is in distress. Uh, And we don't know exactly what it was that caused that distress, but but clearly it was the contrast between past and present that really kind of accentuates it. Verse 5, I thought about the former days, the the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated... And my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? I looked back on the past, on the former days, when things were good, when I was singing my songs, all through the night I was full of joy, and the more I thought about it, the worse now the present seems to me. And so the psalmist is in distress. He won't be comforted. Do you notice that? Verse, at the end of verse 2, I will not be comforted. He groans. The language is very striking. He uh, stretches out his hands with uh, his arms with untiring hands. I think, in other words, he just kept on crying out to God. You kept my eyes from closing. He can't sleep at night, verse, uh, verse 4. And he refuses to be comforted. You can almost imagine him, can't you? People trying to come along uh, to encourage him. But nothing they say can change how he feels. I have moments like that. I have moments when I hope... Uh, I really hope nobody tries to cheer me up. As well. Can you have those moments? <laughs> I just don't think I could cope with someone being jolly. I think that's what the psalmist was feeling. And what it's all about 
is this contrast between the past and the present. He is in distress. He is groaning before God. And I want just to, just, just for us to note that, not to sort of rush over that, not to sort of rush to this kind of solution, as it were. Here is this description of a, of a man in distress, a man who can't be comforted, a man who is groaning. And here are those sentiments recorded in the pages of Scripture. And, and not just in Scripture, I mean all sorts of foolish and arrogant things are said in, in, in the course of Scripture, aren't they? So sort of as examples of, of folly and so on. But no, 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 no. These words are in the Psalms. In fact, if you notice at the top, the, this psalm is addressed to the director of music. Somebody wrote this and then gave it to the sort of worship leader and said, Here's, I've got this great song for us to sing. <laughs> These words are intended to be sung by a congregation. This is part of Israel's hymn book. In other words, expressing our distress has biblical warrant. It's okay to think like this. Christians can sing sad songs. Our response to situations of distress should be feelings of distress. Now, it's true that the psalm doesn't leave us here, but it does go here. This is not kind of forbidden territory for Christians. It's not off-limits. We, we will need to find ways of moving on, but we don't need to feel guilty about being troubled and faint and groaning. In fact, the psalm goes further. The psalmist asks questions of God. If we sort of see the psalmist's distress in verses 1 to 6, in verses 7 to 9, we see the psalmist's questions. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? I wonder what questions you ask, God. Why do you not save more people? Why do you not give me the husband or wife or child that I desire? Why, why is my job to sort of a dead end? When, when will you bring justice to this world? Now, at stake in these questions that the psalmist asks, I think, are two possibilities. The first is, I'm in distress because God has failed. Look at verse 8. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Now, it's very poignant, those verses, is it? Because unfailing love, it does not vanish, does it? That's not unfailing. And a promise that fails is not really a promise, is it? Not a true promise. And it's almost as if the psalmist wants God to feel the sort of dissonance between these things. You know, you, you know all this unfailing love was expected. It, to me, it feels like it's failing. Yeah. Everything in the Bible story is driven by the promises of God. His promise of a people who will know him. The promise of, this, of a land, of a, of, a, of a place of blessing, ultimately a new creation. Everything's driven by those promises. But as far as the psalmist is concerned, they feel at this moment like empty words. 
And then verse 9 raises a second possibility. Am I in distress? The first possibility is, am I in distress because God has failed? second possibility is, am I in distress because I have failed? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? So the, the talk of mercy, the talk of anger, suggests that the psalmist, there's a recognition of his sin. He needs God's mercy, but maybe God has forgotten to be merciful. He feels God's discipline on, on, on him, and, but maybe God's discipline is going to sort of last forever. And with that thought comes the fear that, that that kind of sin has put him beyond God's mercy. I I think that's if we're honest, that's a common train of thought for us. The problem is the problem is not that God is distracted or unable to help, we tell ourselves. The problem is me. The problem is my sin, my doubt, my unbelief. I see my sin and I'm I'm not sure whether I'm really part of God's people. I feel outside of God's mercy. Now, questioning God can be wrong, can be sinful, if it's done in an arrogant or an angry manner. We don't kind of fling our accusations at God. But we can express our confusion to him. And again, here it is, written into the liturgy of God's people. Here it is in in the hymn book of God's people. It's part of God's spirit-inspired word. And what that means is, think about this for a moment, that means God has given us the words to use to question him. Now, I think this psalm gives us a little bit of a framework for asking our questions. It guides us a kind of away from a wrong questioning of God towards a right questioning. And I think the two key things here that come out here is, first of all, we must trust God when we ask our questions. The psalmist will go on, we'll have a look at a bit more of this in a moment, but he'll go on to remember the deeds of the Lord. He's going to look back at God's track record, as it were. We need to ask our questions in the context of trust. So we might say things like, Lord, I don't understand what's happening. When I look at the world, when I look at my life, I just don't understand what's going on. I can't see why you would let this happen. But I do trust you. I do believe that you have answers. I would love it if you might, if you would let me know what those answers were. But even if you don't, I will trust you. I will believe that your purposes are good and your promises are sure. Second thing I think that we see here is that we're to trust God when we ask our questions, we're to uh, talk to God when we ask our questions. It's very striking. In verse 13, there's a sort of little shift of gear. Up to that point, the psalmist has been talking about God. But from verse 13 onwards, he starts talking to God. And we're to take our questions to God rather than kind of let them pull us away from God. Questioning God is dangerous if you ask your questions about God in a spirit of pride. You know, basically, I, I probably know better than God. He's, he's not ruling the universe very well. But asking questions is good and healthy and helpful if you ask your questions to God in a spirit of humility and trust. So feelings of distress are legitimate. 
The Bible uh, equips us to move on from these things, but it does take us here. But these feelings are not to be the last word. They don't need to be the last word. And so let's look at the sort of second half of the psalm, the psalmist's confidence. In the second half of the psalm, the psalmist remembers the story. By the way, I just want to add, the, the two words we had this morning, just, I mean, I, you know, I could have, I could have um, transcribed them and written them into the sermon. It's, anyway, anyway, like the Holy Spirit might have been at work, who knew? <laughs> who knew? Who knew? Second half of the psalm, the psalmist remembers the story, the story of God's people, the story of salvation. Not just that, he appeals to the story. Did you notice that? Verse 10, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. That's his appeal. That's his sort of um, a basis, his claim on God. Now, what does it mean to appeal to the story? Well, verses 11 and 12, I think, kind of elaborate that. And essentially, they say the same thing four times. We have four acts of remembering or reflecting alongside four ways of basically describing God's mighty deeds. So, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works. I will meditate on all your mighty deeds. So remember, remember, consider, meditate. They're all ways of sort of thinking, thinking about stuff. And then deeds, miracles, works, deeds. All the things that God has done. Now this is the liberating moment for the psalmist. This is what turns the whole psalm around. This is what turns his life around. But here's the thing. Nothing changes. There's no change in his circumstances. He hasn't just sort of got a letter or, you know, ping. You know, he was, he, there he was praying away in his distress and then his um, iPhone buzzed and, you know, it was good news or anything. In fact, it's even more striking than that. There's no change in his actions. I, I, was, I was struck by this even as I was reading it again. Look at verse 3. I remembered you and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. Verse 6, I remembered my songs in the night, my heart meditated. So what's he doing in the first half of the psalm? He's remembering, he's meditating, he's remembering, he's meditating. And then the big turnaround comes in verse 11. What's he doing in verse 11? He's remembering, remembering, considering, meditating. He's doing the same thing. The difference is, there's a complete change of perspective. The situation is the same, but now the psalmist sees it all in a bigger context. And that bigger context is the Bible story, the story of God's salvation. That's what verses 13 to 20 are, are, are all about. They are retelling and reimagining the story of the Exodus. So, the final line of verse 14, you display your power among the peoples. That's a, that's a kind of allusion to the plague's uh, of Egypt. Remember how uh, Israel were slaves in Egypt? Uh, God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God set them free uh, through Moses, and uh, the means he does that was to send ten plagues on Egypt, culminating in the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. God's people uh, uh, escaped that because they daubed the blood of a sacrificed lamb, a picture of Jesus, the Passover lamb, uh, and so the, 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 the death, uh, God, when God 
comes through Egypt, bringing death. He passes over those houses, and so Pharaoh says, you can go free. And in the midst of all those plagues, this is what God says to Pharaoh. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power, or that I might display my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's what the psalmist is alluding to at the end of verse 14. You display your power among the peoples. And verses 13 and 14 allude to a song that Moses sang. So, so, so uh, they have the ten plagues, and uh, Pharaoh says, okay, go, go. I don't, you know, uh, finally he says, I'll let you go. And they all head off, you remember that? And then in the middle, uh, uh, very quickly, Pharaoh changes his mind. And, um, and so he sends the army after them. And the people of God are caught between the Red Sea and this uh, Egyptian army, and there seems to be no way out. They can't go back, they can't go forward, and they cry out, and Moses says, just be still, remember the Lord, and uh, they part the Red Sea. So wind comes, and the, the, the sea parts, and they pass through on dry ground. And after that, Moses sings a song that's there in Exodus 15, a kind of celebration. Uh, and this, the language of verses 13 and 14 is kind of echoing that. Just a slight, it's a just slight shift of line order, but Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Verse 13, What God is great like our God? Moses' song says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Psalm 77, Your way, O God, is holy. Exodus 15, Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Psalm 77, You are the God who works wonders. Can you see how... The psalmist is kind of basically uh, riffing on that song here. And then, of course, verses 16 uh, to 19 just describe that parting of the Red Sea, creating a pathway through. Uh, but it's kind of beautifully described. This is the, you know, if you, if, you, if you go back to Exodus 14, you'll get the kind of prose version. Here we've got the poetry version. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. It's just the waters are personified and they see God and, and you know, they're, 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 they're drawing back before the power of God. And then the thunder and the lightning are God's thunder. There's God's arrows flashing backwards and forwards so that we feel it. This story is our story. Yes. And the psalmist kind of puts us in the story, and there we are with the waters kind of writhing all around us. And then the final line, I think, of of that little section is so significant. End of verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Though your footprints were not seen. Why, Why does... The psalmist add that, I think it is because that's the situation that he feels himself to be. During the Exodus, God could not be seen. He didn't leave any physical trace of his presence. He parted the Red Sea, but you, know, you couldn't see his footprint. Everybody, you know, there's a sort of a million Israelite footprints going through. No footprints for God. He couldn't be seen. And yet, he, he was so present in that story. See the point? Now here is the psalmist. 
He feels abandoned by God. It feels to him like God is nowhere to be seen. But as he remembers the story, it reminds him that God led his people even though his footprints were not seen. And maybe God is leading him even though he can't see God at work. The point is this, looking at the story of salvation in the past turns the psalmist's life around. How does that work? Let me suggest a couple of things. Looking at the story, first, looking at the story changes our view of the future. Looking at the story changes our view of the future. The logic of the psalm, I think, is this, that if God could act so powerfully in the past then he can do so again in the future. He can do so again. And in fact, he has done so again. The story was not over as the psalmist wrote. Of course it wasn't. God's promises and God's redemption become richer, bigger, fuller. Uh, in, In the midst of this kind of distress, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, promised a new exodus. God would again, sort of second time round, he would liberate his people and lead them home. But second time round, it would not be a liberation from slavery in Egypt to the land of Palestine. No, this time round, he was going to liberate them from sin and from death and lead them home to a renewed creation. That is the exodus that Jesus accomplished through his death and through his resurrection. Remember when Jesus meets uh, uh, Elijah and Moses? on the uh, mountain of transfiguration. You remember that story from the, from the life of Jesus? In Luke's Gospel, Luke says, they spoke about his departure. And the word is literally his exodus. There is, there is Jesus hanging out with Moses. What are they talking about? They're talking about the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. I don't know quite how the conversation went. It's probably a bit sacrilegious to try to work out. But anyway, imagine Moses, you know, Jesus saying, hey Moses, you remember that exodus? Moses says, yeah, I do remember. You know, that's basically what I did in my life. I said, uh, I'm going to do that again, and this time it's going to be much bigger. Yes. But the principle for us, as, as, you know, as the psalmist, is exactly the same. We look back to God's promises, to, God's, to the story, to the exodus, not, not, of, not so much of Moses, though that's not a bad thing to do, but the real thing to the exodus that Jesus has accomplished. And that's what gives us hope for the future. Now that doesn't mean everything's going to be magically all right. There's no suggestion here that the psalmist's distressing situation has changed. But the exodus, the cross, the resurrection, are God's promise that he will lead us home. He's going to lead us through the sea. Your path led through the sea. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock. He's going to lead us home to a new creation. If you're distressed this morning by illness, I can't promise you that illness will go away. Though it might. But I can promise you that God will lead you home to a world without pain. If you're distressed by grief, I can promise you that God will lead you home to a world where he will wipe away every tear. If you're distressed by loss, I can promise you that God will lead you home 
to a world without death. Romans 8. I think you know something about Romans 8. But Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So looking at the story changes our view of the future, but also looking at the story changes our view of the present. Verses 13 and 14 again. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Here is the psalmist. He's still asking questions. But this is a whole different type of question, isn't it? Very different kind. What God is as great as our God? Now that's what he says. It's a rhetorical question. What God is as great as our God? God's ways are holy. That is, God is different. God's ways are so different. They're so unlike any other so-called God. Because he is the God who performs wonders. In other words, God is defined by the story of the Exodus. I was once... um, doing a Bible study with some Chinese students. Uh, uh, sort of evangelistic Bible study. We're looking at Mark's Gospel, and you know, I thought, oh, this is going really well, they're really keen. And then uh, halfway through, one of them sort of tentatively put her hand up, and she said, I do have one question. I said, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. Who is God? <laughs> like, oh, my word. <laughs> what are we in the last half hour? You know, it's just got to pass them by, you know. I need to go way back to some first steps here before we can... Who is God? I wonder how you would answer that question. Interestingly, when at the beginning of the story of the Exodus, when Moses, whom God is about to call to lead his people out of Egypt, when he encounters God, that's the question Moses asks. Uh, God said, you know, I want you to lead my people. And Moses says, you know, who am I to lead them? And then he says, you know, when I go to the Israelites and I say, uh, God says we're going to go out of Egypt, they're going to say, who is this God that you're talking about? Suppose I go to the Israelites, he says in Exodus 3, and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? God's answer is, I am who I am. And then he describes how he is the God who made promises to Abraham and how he is the God who will lead them out of slavery. It's almost as if God is saying is, you want to know who I am? You want to know what my name is? You want to know what I'm like? Just sit back and watch. I'm going to to show you who I am by what I do amongst the Egyptians. God is known through his promises and he is known through the story of salvation. And for the people of Israel, that meant the story of the Exodus. If you asked an Israelite uh, who God was, they would have told you the story of the Exodus. And if actually, if you'd asked them who they were, they would have told you the story of the Exodus. God is defined by his covenant and by the Exodus. That's what that, that reality, that, that understanding is what changes the psalmist's view of the world. 
Who is God? He is the God who redeems his people by his power. Who are we? We are the people who have been redeemed by the power of God. Who is God? He is the God of Jesus, the God of the new Exodus, the God who sent his Son, the God who revealed himself in his Son, the God who rescued us by his Son. Who are we? We are the people of God, loved by God, rescued by God, made children of God. Now here's what's so striking, I think, about this psalm. This is the kind of final thing I want you to get your heads around. We're not told how this new perspective on who God is, on who we are, we're not told how that impacts the emotions of the psalmist. In verse 3, we read, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. There's no mistaking the kind of negative emotions of the first half of the psalm, is there? I groaned, I uh, was in distress, I stretched out my hands with untiring hands, I couldn't be comforted. And you kind of want, in the second half, something which goes, now I remembered and I rejoiced. It's not there. We, we don't know what his emotional state is at the end of the psalm. I think we can guess, but we're not told. All we're told is what he remembered. The facts of God's miracles and power, they're kind of itemised. As a reader, I want to know, so what? You know, how did that make him feel? But I wonder if that is actually the most significant lesson for us to learn from this psalm. In the second half of the psalm, the psalmist himself disappears from view. Verses 1 to 6 are all about the psalmist. Just If you've got them in front of you, have a look at them. I cried out, I cried out, I was in distress, I sought the Lord, I stretched out untiring hands, I remembered, I groaned, I meditated, my spirit grew faint, I I was too troubled to speak, I thought, I remembered, my heart meditated, my spirit asked. Who's, 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 who's that about? It's kind of obvious. <laughs> oh my word, what an ego. Throughout, throughout those verses, he's the subject of all the verbs. Only briefly in verse 4 does God get a look in, you kept my eyes from closing, but really it's only by way of accusation. And then in verses 10 to 12, the psalmist determines that now he's going to remember the deeds of the Lord going to meditate on your mighty deeds. And from then on, God is the subject of all the verbs, all the adjectives. Mm. Your ways, you are the God. You display your power, your mighty hand, you redeemed, your people, the water saw you, your arrows, your thunder, your lightning, your path, your way, you led your people. I, I, I becomes you, you, you. You see that? 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, famously said, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Perhaps the psalmist's problem at the beginning of the psalm is he's looking at himself. And his solution is to look at God and to look at God's story. Perhaps that's why we never get to discover his emotional response at the end of the psalm. 
Perhaps it doesn't matter. Emotions don't transform emotions. You can be G'd up by, uh, by a Sunday morning church gathering, but on Monday morning you'll be facing the same old problems. And, and today's kind of emotional boost will soon fade. But if on a Sunday morning you've been directed to Christ, yes. to see him in his glory, yes. to see the story of his salvation, then you'll view those problems in a bigger perspective. You'll view them with hope. It's the reality of God and his promises. It's the reality of Christ and his salvation. That's what transforms our emotions. So let your emotions be shaped by the story, by the promise of God and the redemption of Christ. Let me end with that quote from Robert Murray McShane in, a bigger, in, its, in its context, in its original context, okay? Always nice to hand the sermon over to another preacher at the end. Better one than me. Learn much of your own heart. And when you have learned all you can, remember you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then learn much of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you know, by all means study your heart, but you'll soon realise that you know, it's just this sort of seething pit of confusion. Mm. So here's a better option. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. Yes. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for all sinners... Even the chief of sinners live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose or rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly, or the world, or Satan, or the flesh. Let me pray. Father, we pray that now, as we uh, meditate on your word as we remember your story. Uh, we pray that now as we uh, take communion uh, that we might uh, set our thoughts, that we might look at Christ and see him as the altogether lovely one. That we might feel your smile that is ours in him. We might bask in the beams of your love. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come now and ravish us with the sweetness and excellency of Christ. Fill our hearts with that. Drive away our folly, our, the world, Satan, the flesh, our questions, our doubts. And fill us with Christ, we pray. And not just now, but tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and on into the week and beyond. 
Father, we pray that this week, uh, this month, that this might be our word to one another. Look at Christ and be uh, ravished by him. We ask it in his name. Amen. We're about to take bread and wine. Why do we do that? Now, there are a number of answers to that question, but one is to remind us of the story, of the character of God, of the promises of God, of the exodus that Christ has achieved. Uh, This meal was originally the Passover meal. This this sort of uh, remembrance, act of remembering the exodus has become for us the act of remembering the new exodus. Why do we do that? I think, why, why, why did Christ give us bread and wine? I think it is because we are so easily distracted. We so easily look at ourselves. And I think in his kindness, he gave us bread and wine. And he gave us the promise in physical form. And so I want you to invite you to receive it this morning from Christ as his gift. Think of the the hands that pass it to you are simply Christ's means of getting the bread into your hands. It is Christ who hosts us this morning and who offers us bread and wine as as a token, as a reminder, as a promise of his love and that God will lead us home to a new creation. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.